BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The summer season is upon us and with it, the Olympic Games in Tokyo. Today, we're going to focus on how weather comes into play, not only during extreme events, but the summer events themselves, but also how it factors into planning a large-scale international sports event. Today's guest is Dr. Andrew Grunstein of the University of Georgia, who is on the International Olympic Committee for his weather climate expertise and has been on the podcast before. He focuses on heat and other aspects of health and weather and how it impacts athletes. So we're going to focus on Dr. Grunstein's expertise on how weather and climate went into planning for the Olympic Tokyo Games and how weather could affect athletes. Andy, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, you know, some of you may be longtime listeners of the podcast, so you know that Dr. Grunstein is a friend of the podcast and has visited with us before. He's a professor in the geography department at the University of Georgia since 1999, which means he's a colleague of mine. Uh, He has his PhD from the University of Delaware in climatology, as well as a master's degree from Delaware in geography. And he has a bachelor's degree from the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA, that is, in geography, ecosystems, and political science. And of relevance to today's topic, he's on the International Olympic Committee uh, advising on weather and climate related issues. So uh, again, let's remind everyone because we do this and so perhaps someone didn't hear your first episode. How'd you get into weather and climate? Is this something you've always uh, aspired to do? Geography, weather, climate, or did you just kind of stumble into it? <laughs> you know, um, I've always been really interested in the natural environment and how it affects people. So being able to get into the work I'm doing now where I'm looking at, you know, heat and health and sports um, is like the perfect combination of things. Um, but how I got into it, part of it was I've always been interested, but part of it just as a teacher, and I know you know this as a professor too, that I was really inspired by some of my professors that really encouraged me to pursue some of my interests and get into it. So I, I think just being a, a teacher that can really inspire your students um, is a great way to get people into the field. Now, let's let's pivot a little bit because you've been at UGA now what, over 20 years and you're a climatologist, a geographer, uh, you're in the atmospheric sciences program. We're cl- colleagues in that program together. Tell us a little bit about the program at University of Georgia, both geography and, and what you're doing in the climate world at UGA. Yeah, so we, we've got this uh, great program in geography, you know, and geography covers a, a really broad range of topics from social sciences to the physical sciences and technology. Um, and then we have our atmospheric science program within it and our climate program. So I, I think being housed in that environment is fantastic for what I do because you get these diverse viewpoints and I can pop into someone's office and ask them about remote sensing or radar or about some of the social science aspects of things. So it's a really just great environment, you know, to, to work in. Yeah. And, and I know that your, your, your expertise spans from talking about heat as it relates to children and cars dying to 
uh, professional football athletes. I know that Dr. Grunstein uh, received a significant award at the National Football League NFL in New York in recent years. So he's someone that really knows his stuff. And I, I know that, again, I want to kind of, before we kind of dive into the impacts on Olympic activities and so forth, I just want to give the listeners a little bit of backdrop and context. So Talk about some of your major sort of work in this area, perhaps your work with uh, football or, or perhaps even in hot cars, just to give some people some context on what you've done in this regard. Sure, uh, one of the bigger areas I've been working in is in heat and athletes. And I got into looking at heat as it affects football players. And among athletes, you, prob you have more deaths from heat than any other sport. So, and there's a good reason for that. You know, football players have more equipment. They practice, you know, in the summer, a lot of them are, you know, have lots of muscle mass and that could increase your, your risk. Um, so I got into looking at that actually as a graduate student class. I worked at Dr. Knox, you know, our mutual colleague, and that really inspired me to get into this even more. So I started, I got involved in the, uh, a big study of Georgia high school football players. And we started looking at how a change in policy could affect safety. And from that, I've just continued to, to work in, in sports safety, um, not just in football, but kind of broadening it to other sports as you know, we'll, I guess we'll talk about a little bit later. But one of the things that just kind of stood out is good policy could be life-saving. And you know, in our study of Georgia high school football players, you know, we dropped the number of, of kind of heat illnesses, you know, a huge amount, it made things like far safer than it had in the past. Yeah, we're talking with Dr. Andrew Grunstein from the University of Georgia, who's a, an expert in weather and health related issues and clearly is an expert if the US Olympic Committee would come and ask for his advice as they plan the Tokyo Olympics, which ironically was postponed in 2020 because of the COVID pandemic. And so I, I guess it's my understanding that it's planning to take place in 2021, Andy, uh, and, and, and a question on that, and from a, I guess it's relevant to the topic today, uh, are we looking at exactly sort of the same time frame in 2021 as we were in 2020, 2020 with the rescheduled Olympics? I haven't seen the exact date. Uh, it, it may be out there, but I think approximately the same time in, in the summer months. I know, you know, for you know, some of us, you know, with background in climate, it's like, could you shift it to a cooler time of the year? Because this Olympics in Tokyo is going to be one of the hottest on record. So, you know, some of us are thinking maybe you can shift it. Um, and there's some precedence, at least in other international sports. Um, the World Cup in Qatar in 2022 was actually shifted to the, to the uh, late fall where it would be cooler. But there's a lot of planning and other issues going on. So if, you know, as it continues, I think the plan is for the summer. Well, well, let's let's talk about that now because you did mention that Tokyo is projected to be one of the, the hotter Olympics, summer Olympics that we faced, and we certainly, um, you know, it's the summer Olympics, so we expect it to be warm. Uh, why do you say that, and and what particularly concerns you as a weather climate expert? Yeah, so Tokyo summers are are hot and they're humid, and that combination can cause a lot of heat stress and some other. You know, some other work has, has actually compared other Olympics and, you know, Tokyo, kind of the average is going to be hotter than, you know, in other places. Um, Athens, Greece was very hot Olympics. Um, Rio was hot, but the potential for Tokyo could be the hottest one on record. 
And, you know, that's a huge concern when we're talking about heat stress and, and heat illnesses. Now, you mentioned heat and humidity, sort of the things that we worry about when we talk about heat illnesses. Um, many people may be familiar with the heat index, with this combination of the, how it feels because of the temperature and the humidity. I, I guess the more technical term that we often would use is the apparent temperature. Uh, but there's also something else that has emerged that I know that you're very big on, which is the wet bulb globe temperature. So talk to us about what the wet bulb globe temperature is and does it come up in your discussions with the Olympic Committee? Yeah, absolutely. And let me just backtrack a little bit. You know, when you're out there and you're worried about heat, there's a lot of different factors you want to consider. You know, obviously the air temperature and the humidity are, are important, but also, you know, the sunlight, if you're in the sun or not, um, if it's windy, these are all really important factors for influencing heat stress. So the wet bulb globe temperature is a measure that tries to integrate those different factors. So it tries to combine the temperature, humidity, um, sun, and even indirectly wind speed. And some, some federations, and I should also mention that the IOC you know, is made up of all these different federations that represent different sports. And each of those federations develop their own heat policies. So some of them will use the wet bulb globe temperature. Um, other ones will use other you know, temperature and humidity, um, some other factors. I know that around Tokyo, they have a, a mesonet now that will record the wet bulb globe temperature and provide that information um, to the athletes and their, their managers. And, and as I understand it from talking to you and working with you over the years, this wet bulb globe temperature doesn't it have a bit more information on not just the ambient temperature and humidity, but also just something about radiative effects or exchanges with the body? Or am I thinking about this incorrectly? No, no, absolutely. So the wet bulb globe temperature is actually a weighted average of three different temperature measurements. So uh, you've got the black globe temperature, which is a thermometer with a black metal globe on it that's supposed to capture the radiative effects of, of sunlight and even radiative effects that might come off of buildings. So it's trying to capture that effect. Uh, you have the wet bulb temperature, which is trying to capture the evaporative cooling potential being outside. And that's where the humidity really comes in. And under humid conditions, it's gonna be harder for sweat to evaporate. So you're think about your body's uh, air conditioning system isn't working as well. And then you just have what's called the dry bulb temperature, which is just the ambient temperature. And you combine those things that, you know, ideally is giving you a better sense about the heat stress in a given condition than just the air temperature alone. We're talking with Dr. Andy Grunstein from the University of Georgia, all about heat and weather and the Olympics. Uh, boy, I missed the Olympics because I was looking forward to it in 2020, but you know, COVID and coronavirus certainly uh, changed the thought there. Andy, this committee that you're on, tell us a little bit about that committee and are there other weather climate experts involved? Sure, um, so it's actually called the Adverse Weather Impact Expert Working Group. And there are, most of the people on the committee are in sports medicine or physiologists. So I'm actually the only uh, climate scientist on the committee. And so it's been really neat experience for me being surrounded by all of these you know, experts in, in sports with uh, a wealth of experience in you know, running these events safely. And so my role is really to provide climate data and provide perspective on what the weather hazards could be in terms of heat. 
And I, I want to remind everyone that we are taping the podcast in an era of COVID. And so we're doing things a little differently than the studio that we normally would do. So if you hear occasional audio dropouts here and there, uh, thank you for bearing with us. It's just the reality of the COVID world we're in. Uh, so you've talked about heat, humidity, and you actually even mentioned this idea that we may have advised about moving times for the Olympics. I want to sort of step back. I mean, I would imagine the Olympic Committee, they do, well, you would think they would consider weather, climate, sort of climatological conditions when they determine where to even host these Olympics. Uh, does that come into play? I mean, or, you know, I guess, do they look at it and say, well, you know, it's the Summer Olympics, we expect it to be hot. Now, that's a great question. And I don't know all the details that go into how they select Olympic cities, um, but I know the upcoming, um, it's going to be in Los Angeles and Paris. And thinking as a climatologist, you know, I know that you know LA, you know, even last fall, you know, Southern California had a massive heat wave and triple-digit temperatures. Uh, you know, in, in Europe, they've had massive heat waves. You know, in Paris, it's unusual, but triple-digit temperatures. Um, and one of the things I think going forward, you really have to think about and plan for is that the worst-case scenario that you could have a situation where you have these extremely hot conditions and how do you move forward with the game safely? And not just for the athletes. I mean, we're also on the committee worried about the staff, the Olympic staff. Uh, we're worried about spectators. Um, so you really have to anticipate these kinds of things. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And it's always a treat when I have one of my fellow colleagues from the University of Georgia on the show, uh, talking with Dr. Andy Grunstein, who's a geographer and climatologist at the University of Georgia, and also internationally known for his work on weather and climate and health. Now, is heat and humidity really the only sort of weather factor that comes up in your committee meetings? Or are there other things that you're thinking about? In our meeting, we've been focused mostly on heat, um, but I know some of the other federations, and this is something that uh, I think it is broadly of concern. You know, obviously you're worried about lightning if people are outside um, and think about how diverse the sports are. So there's different hazards. I mean, we have sailing and um, you know, you, obviously you're worried about different situations. Um, you know, you could worry about uh, you know, heavy rains. Um, you know, Tokyo was hit with the typhoon. You know, not long. You know, in the past. So these are all different types of weather hazards that you have to be worried about. Though our committee has been focusing mostly on the heat factor. Well, and you talk about heat, and you were mentioning football players early and the amount of equipment that they wear. And I know some of your own research has shown that, particularly some of the sort of larger football players on, on a team, the linemen and so forth are particularly vulnerable. And I know you've done work with the Corey, shout out to the Corey Stringer Institute, by the way, I know that they've been a, a sort of a shining light and sort of, uh, sort of raising awareness on some of these heat athletic issues. And I know you work closely with them. Uh, as I'm thinking about Olympic sports, uh, and you mentioned some, are, are there sports that come to mind within the Olympics that create more of a heat risk than others. I mean, I, again, I can imagine 
some of the long distance running events and so forth. But I was trying to think as we're talking, are there sports where there's more equipment involved or additional hazards? Uh, from your perspective, have you thought about that? No, absolutely. I mean, you know, when we looked at these different events, you could really look at a spectrum from ones that, and I should mention one of the things about the hazard is whether you're, you know, outdoors or indoors, and then how much kind of metabolic heat your body's generating. So something like the marathon or the race walk where you're outside and you're moving for, you know, at least two hours or more, that's going to be a really high risk. And, you know, think about um, road cycling and mountain biking, um, tennis, you know, these are all sports uh, where, where, you know, heat is a big issue. And then you have other sports where some of the track and field events that are shorter or archery, you probably less of a concern about the heat. Um, so there's kind of a spectrum of, you know, among the sports and the neat thing about the Olympics is you get to see so many different sports. They, and yeah, I know you study urban climates and microclimates. One of the things I've been thinking about is just the very different microclimatic settings that these different sports occur under, right? So you've got beach volleyball, you've got sailing and open water swimming. You have people playing on, you know, grass fields. You have people playing on tennis courts. Uh, you have marathon and race walkers going through, you know, urban areas. At least the original marathon was in Tokyo. Um, so you're going between buildings and on roads, um, and there's very different microclimates within the city. So there's really, you know, in terms of exposures, they're really different. It's really interesting, at least as a microclimatologist. Yeah, you know, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that, but you know, we know both of us have studied urban climate and we know that even within the ur- what we call urban canyons, just these sort of you know, narrow roadways between buildings, we can have very different heat conditions from say uh, running by a, a park in Tokyo versus sort of the urban canopy of the downtown area. So that, that would actually be interesting using some of your, and I'm gonna ask you about this. I know you and one of our colleagues, Dr. Deepak Mishra, have a study with the National Science Foundation where you've been using some interesting interesting technology, wearable instruments. It'd be interesting actually to have uh, some of these wearable wearable uh, instruments on some of the runners this, this sort of track. I mean, I, of course, I know that may not be possible, but for perhaps future Olympics to sort of track the variability. Tell us a little bit about that study. Sure. Uh, one of the ideas is that, you know, every, you know, lots of towns have weather stations, but the weather stations don't always capture the, the detailed microclimate environment, especially in a you know a complex uh, city, and so one of the ideas that we had was to mount sensors on people, but also on on the bus network. So you know uh, UGA Transit and Athens Transit, who've been wonderful to work with, um, allowed us to put our sensors on the buses, and the buses would you know traverse you know the Athens area and uh, collect data and we have a very high resolution data set on different microclimates around the city and we could analyze that data to find areas that are hotter and cooler and that kind of information is really useful for lots of different things i could imagine like race planning can you plan you know the coolest route or for the city to micro target areas where a lot of people might go but are really hot to add more say green space yeah uh, yeah, that's that's so fascinating. You're right. I think there could be some a priori planning based on this type of study. So, you know, I, I hope that uh, that this will be implemented a bit more in the future. Now, I was curious about from your role as a member of this committee. Uh, do you have any insight into what goes on in terms of real time 
weather and climate monitoring during the Olympics? Are, are there meteorologists on staff or do they, are they working with the Japanese Meteorological Agency, JMA or others? How, how, do you know anything about what goes on sort of in real time once the events are happening? Well, I know that National Weather Services or Weather Bureaus are always very involved with the Olympic Committee providing information and advice. Um, I know the National Weather Service, when we had it in Atlanta, was very involved with providing um, forecasts and information. Um, at least on our committee, I know that there are there's going to be a mechanism for providing weather data um, to uh, you know, uh, the athletes and and their their managers so that they can make decisions, you know, in anticipation. Um, and then each federation will have their own guidelines about where and when they take measurements and how they do it, whether they'll rely on a weather station or take on-site measurements. Um, and then they have their own guidelines about what to do if it's, you know, too hot or humid and so forth. Yeah, that, that's, that's really interesting, uh, which got me to thinking, you know, these athletes come from all over the world. And some of them maybe come from climates that aren't as warm and humid as Tokyo or Atlanta. Um, are there concerns about acclimatization issues when you have perhaps a runner that's coming from Sweden or someplace that's a cooler climate? But I imagine perhaps they do uh, train or do some of their training in places to acclimate. But I, I can imagine from someone's lens like yours, that would be a concern as well. No, absolutely. And one other thing the committee is doing is trying to provide informational um, you know, information guidance to athletes that will be shared to them to provide them with, you know, kind of best practices in terms of, uh, you're talking about acclimatization. So it takes a week to two weeks in a given environment for your body to physiologically adapt to the conditions. Um, and that's a big component of things. So if you're going to Tokyo and it's hot and humid, uh, it's really important to acclimatize to those conditions um, ahead of time. So, you know, trying to provide athletes with that kind of information and guidance, you know, about hydration um, and so forth, I think is really important. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with Dr. Andy Grunstein from the University of Georgia about weather uh, and the Olympics. It's an, a, oddly an Olympic year. Uh, it's 2021, but everything's been different because of climate. Uh, I'm sorry, COVID. I'm, I'm thinking about climate and perhaps climate too. Uh, and so we now will have the Summer Olympics, we think, in 2021. I mean, we're still dealing with a pandemic, even as we're taping this in early February. So uh, fingers crossed that uh, everyone's getting those vaccines, wearing the masks, staying socially distant and so forth, so we can get over this hump, so we can get back to enjoying things like the Olympics. Now, Andy, one question that I didn't want to pose to you, whose responsibility ultimately is it for the safety and well-being of the athletes in uh, the Olympics from a, a heat and weather standpoint? I mean, is it personal responsibility of the athletes and their teams and coaches, uh, the Olympic committee or a combination of all involved? Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. I, I think there's multiple parties that have to be responsible for this. 
you know, always, I mean, you know, the athletes, um, you know, they're kind of the people kind of managing the team. Um, each venue has a venue medical officer that is uh, tasked with, you know, the health and safety of the athletes. Um, one of the things that the committee is working on is developing a set of uh, you know, evidence-based protocols if uh, an athlete has a suspected heat stroke. And so there are pe people that are tasked with the responsibility of making sure this process occurs in the right way. And, you know, recognizing a heat stroke, then what do you do in the next step, you know, in, in kind of each kind of step of the progression to make sure they're treated um, as best as possible. Yeah, that, make, that makes uh, plenty of sense. Now, there's something that, you know, our producers, and I want to give a shout out to Sarah Dillingham, particularly on this episode, one of the extraordinary producers of Weather Geeks, who happens to be a former student uh, in our program at the University of Georgia. You know, I actually don't even think I had Sarah in a class. I can't remember. I think she was close to leaving as I joined the faculty, but I imagine you had uh, Sarah Dillingham in a class. So I know you want to give a shout out to her as well. I know she listens to all of these. So oh, definitely. All, Hi, Sarah. Thank you for all that you do for this podcast, Sarah, and, and all the team in general. One thing that Sarah and the team asked me to um, mention to you is air quality. Now, I don't know that Japan, particularly Tokyo, has the same air quality issues, but I know that, for example, when the Olympics were held in Beijing, China, who is notorious for some of their air quality issues, uh, I'm sure this is something that comes up in the discussion too. So, I mean, have you thought, thought about as a committee the air quality issue? That hasn't really come up as an issue in our committee. And I kind of like I said, we we focus principally on, on the heat aspect of things. Although you're absolutely right that air quality, especially I know in, in Beijing, was a big issue for the athletes. Yeah, one of the things that's really interesting about Japan, and particularly Tokyo, Japan is an island, and I can imagine their ventilation with the sea breeze and some other types of what you call local microclimate circulations that may help uh, with some of the air quality issues. I, I you know, I, it's interesting as we talk about this, and even as I think about it, I, I don't ever recall hearing of Tokyo being a particularly poor city in terms of air quality the way we hear about in some other cities in Asia. So perhaps it's just not as much, much of an issue. So, yeah. Well, go ahead. No, go, no, go ahead. No, no. Yeah. Yeah. As I said, I haven't heard a lot about the air quality issue there. Um, so, you know, I want to use this last sort of moment of time. I always like when I have experts on, I always like to kind of pick, pick their brain about what they're working on. So uh, what can, I know one of the things that you work on, and you and I have collaborated on this together, and you, we talked a little bit about it the last time you were on the podcast, is something called thunderstorm asthma. Now, theoretically, I guess that could come up in an Olympic setting too, but um, are you still working on thunderstorm asthma, and what other cool projects are you doing these days? No, definitely. I'm still working on thunderstorm asthma, and one area that I would like to get into with that a little bit is with athletes and thunderstorm asthma, because you know, as we talked about in the previous podcast to give the like five second summary of it is, you know, it, it occurs on days with lots of pollens and you have thunderstorms and people can suffer asthma attacks from it. And athletes are outside, you know, a lot of times during these events and the thunderstorm doesn't have to be over you, you get hit with the gust front. So they're out there and athletes when they're exercising are bringing in more air. So I, I, would be really interested to see if there are increases in athletes suffering from asthma during thunderstorms. And a lot of the, you know, sports teams will have medical professionals like athletic trainers or staff uh, physicians around to be able to monitor these kinds of things. 
So I, I think that would be a really neat topic to expand into. And and remind people, because again, for those that aren't familiar with what the heck we're talking about with thunderstorm asthma, remind people what the theory is behind why, how a thunderstorm can actually make asthma worse. Yeah, it seems very counterintuitive uh, because most people will think when it rains, it washes out the pollens. The idea with thunderstorm asthma is that pollens get drawn up into the cloud and in the high humidity of the cloud, the pollens rupture into these small granules and then the downdraft of the thunderstorm will carry these small granules to the surface. And if someone who has a pollen allergy inhales those particles and because they're so small, they can get deep into your respiratory system, they could set off an asthma attack. And we know that this can cause major problems. What we saw in Melbourne in 2016, where it uh, led to overflows in hospitals, I think eight people died uh, so it can cause you know massive health problems. Yeah, and it's uh, it's interesting you mentioned that because you know I think about athletes and you you're right that's certainly another area where this is very relevant, particularly if you've got these large scale events and you know Tokyo is going to experience afternoon thunderstorms uh, as Atlanta and many other places around the world are. So yeah, that's an interesting sort of pivot. Uh, I don't want to sort of leave without discussing that your very important work on kids and cars. I mean, it's not so much related to the Olympics, although perhaps there are people that will be spectators that will have their kids, but you, you just sort of summarize some of the key things you've done in that regard, because it's just so important. No, absolutely. So one of the other projects I look, look at with heat is about children being left in hot cars and you know, cars act as a, a microclimate. And because they act like a, a sort of they operate like a greenhouse, um, the sunlight can come in and they cars can reach these incredibly hot temperatures. And on average in the US, about 38 children a year die from heat stroke um, in the vehicles. It's extremely preventable. In the era of COVID, as a side note though, we saw that there was a decrease this year. There was only about 24. Um, so the circumstances that, that can lead to this or you know, parents forget their kids a car um, they intentionally leave their child in a car or the children get, you know, they're playing outside and they get in the car and they get trapped in there. Um, that number hasn't changed because a lot of people have been at home, but because we've been driving less and a lot of schools have been closed and daycares have been closed, uh, there have been much fewer cases of parents forgetting their kids in the car or even intentionally leaving them in there. So that's been sort of an interesting change in the, the COVID era. And it's welcome that there has been a decrease in the number of these deaths this year. Well, I'm sure that you, you or our good friend Jan Null will perhaps write something about that because it seems like there's a really interesting study in that in, in itself, or maybe at least some anecdotal evidence to pursue. Um, as we draw to a close here, um, what, what's next for you in the committee? Are you all still meeting regularly and will you sort of sunset or wind down your committee work for the Olympics once the Olympics actually kick off? Tell us a little bit about what's next for you in that role. Right. So we're still, uh, still moving along. We meet uh, approximately every month or so. And there's a couple key topics. You know, I mentioned that trying to set up some protocols if an athlete uh, has a su suspected heat stroke. Um, we have, you know, about providing information to the athletes. Um, so I, I think we're, we're still working on these things and making sure that they get out and that we uh, coordinate with, you know, the IOC in terms of implementing these different things. So we are, we are still continuing to, to work on these topics. 
And as I said, they're all kind of tied to heat and informing people and making sure there are best practices to protect the athletes and also the, the staff and the spectators. Yeah, and I really want to thank you for your work and your colleagues on the committee, because I think the Olympics is an iconic event and it's something that signifies competition, but also normalcy. And in this COVID era, I think we all want to get back to that safely, of course. Now, before we go, uh, it's time for the Geek of the Week. Uh, it's the time of the week where we highlight a scientist, superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Dr. Kim Wood. Dr. Wood is an assistant professor whose favorite weather to experience is air mass thunderstorms, particularly those during the Arizona monsoon. She loves to study hurricanes and is happy to spend all day talking about hurricanes and their impacts. She even got to fly through Hurricane Carl in 2010 in the NASA DC-8. More power to you, Kim. Uh, very cool. Stay geeky, Kim. And if you want to follow her, check her out on Twitter at Dr. Kim, I'm sorry, Dr. Kim Wood. It's that simple. If you know someone who would make a great Geek of the Week, be sure to visit our Weather Geek social media pages. Uh, Dr. Grunstein, or Andy, as I know you, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we'll see you next time on Weather Geeks.